Well, last time we started this period uh, of uh, Thyatira, and right around 500 A.D., and we uh, talked about the uh, beginning of the Dark Ages. And I told you that the Dark Ages run about 1,000 years in history. They run about 500 A.D. to up around 1,500 uh, up to the Reformation period. And you heard me talk about how that it's the uh, absolutely the darkest point of all human history. There's no question about it. There's no time in the history of man that has been more bleak uh, on a national scale as the Dark Ages. I mean, it, it was all through Europe. And we know now that pretty much that that all came about because of the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church taking over uh, basically the world. We're going to see how that even developed even more tonight as we move on down through here. Bible says that the entrance of thy word giveth light. The Bible says thy word is a lamp unto my feet, light unto my path. Whenever the world does not have light, then it's in darkness. And of course, that's what happened in the dark ages. That's the you know, that's the long and the short of it. When you study history, a couple of things you want to remember. There's the right answer, then there's the Bible answer. And there's a long answer that will be what history will give you. And then there's the biblical answer, which is really the thing you want to, well, you really want to know them both, but it's the thing that you really want to stay focused on. If you went to college someplace, they would go on and on and on and talk about the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, and, and lay out how that it was the uh, uh, how it brought itself about and, and how it came out, and they put it in, a, in an evolutionary fashion. Of course, you know, at the end of the Dark Ages come what we call the Renaissance period. And uh, Renaissance means new, uh, rebirth. And uh, they, they put it into the context that, uh, you know, the, uh, through the process, man in Europe was moving through and, and learning to do better things. And, and, uh, and as he evolved, he got to the point where he came out of the Dark Ages, just like he came out of the caves when he was a caveman, which he never was. And then suddenly he comes to the point where now he is, uh, you know, he's learning all of these things. And, of course, that's the, that's the world's answer to it. There's always the world's answer, and then there's the Bible's answer. The smart person will always know both and know how they all reconcile with each other. And, of course, the Dark Ages are nothing more than the Roman Catholic Church taking over the world and suppressing the light of the King James Bible, even though it wasn't a King James Bible then. It would have been the, it would have been the old Latin and the old uh, Syriac Latin versions that was down from out of Antioch. And when they did that, they threw the world into darkness. When the world emerged from that darkness, it emerged from that darkness not because man had evolved, but because Martin Luther, as many of the reformers, had broken with the Roman Catholic Church, and it opened the door. And when the Roman Catholic Church got its back broke and the Word of God came out again, that's what brought in what we commonly call the Renaissance period. And uh, it was a rebirth. It was a rebirth from the old, stale, static uh, Roman Catholic Church. And there's a lot of reasons that that happened, and we're going to we're going to make, um, I'm going to try to make you, help you see that as we come down through it. There's just so much in here. Well, we talked about how that it's absolutely important to grasp the concept of the dark ages and how it all works. Remember Revelation chapter 2, verse uh, 24, it talked about the depths of Satan. And we talked about during this period of time, this is where um, all of the doctrines get formulated and become part of the teaching of the church. We talked about the worship of Mary and the priest dressing differently and the Latin language adopted as the official language and 
you know, the worship of images and holy water mixed with salt and the statues and baptism of bells and all the different things that, that take place, Lent and fasting on Friday. We saw all this come in when Constantine brought in all the pagan aspects into the church, and then it begins to go from there. During this period of time, we find another thing that gets introduced that you want to remember, and it's, uh, uh, it's monasticism. And monasticism is the, uh, is the act of uh, uh, cutting yourself, hurting yourself, whipping yourself, beating yourself uh, for some kind of penance with God. And it starts about 450 and is on the scene about 500 and basically, believe it or not, continues to this day uh, in many of the Roman Catholic churches in Europe, uh, in the monasteries, and probably also even in the United States at certain points. But here again, we see that even the source of this goes back to uh, uh, Alexandria, Egypt, because if you remember our earlier studies, it was Origen himself who, be- who first uh, began to... Uh, uh, deal with himself physically where he castrated himself uh, so he would not uh, have a problem with the flesh, thinking that would give him some kind of penance with God or some kind of reward with God. And of course, uh, it didn't do him any much better than it did these guys. But it starts, uh, it starts, and the idea is that this is, a, this is an act of denying yourself. Uh, and then a little bit later on, as that doesn't fulfill it, then you come to the place where obviously you just get deeper into it and went to the point where uh, it becomes one of, of physically hurting yourself. Martin Luther, before he was saved, when he was a Roman Catholic monk, felt the void of God in his life that he was told all of his life that the Catholic Church would fulfill, and it didn't. He himself was caught up into this, and he talked about, wrote about the fact that the cathedral steps were like 500 steps. He would, he would go up those on his knees three or four times a day to his knees were absolutely bloody, thinking that that would give him the peace that he was looking for, and of course, it, it never did. And it was only till he, when he found uh, the book of Romans that the just shall live by faith that he really ever got, uh, you know, got squared away on the thing. But they, they believe that um, if you live a hermit's life, if you deny yourself, you know, um, that this will lead to holiness with God. And uh, all of this false teaching we see goes right back to Alexandria, right where the corrupt Bible came from. And uh, there's some great material on it. You asked me a question? Oh. No, I thought you were going to ask me a question. You're, oh, no. Okay. There's some, you know, down through history, there's some great books on it. We have some over there, you know. Ruckman's, uh, he gives a great, good uh, layout of it. But they, they, some of the stuff was absolutely unbelievable. Uh, many of them wore iron collars all of their lives, you know, that weighed 100 pounds, you know, and they dragged them around with chains. Uh, others kept their fish, uh, believe it or not, others, others vowed and, and kept their fish shut to the point where their t- fingernails grew through their hands. I mean, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. And some stood on one leg for weeks. Some would never speak a word again. They take the vial of a vow of silence. And uh, some looked over their shoulders until the, uh, so long and, and that way till their neck muscles froze and they couldn't uh, turn them back. Others laid on spikes. Some suspended themselves by hooks over hot fires. Uh, others still fastened themselves to a tree by nails uh, for periods of time. Philip Schaff covers this uh, in volume three. 
uh, uh, where he talks about uh, page 175 that he goes through, if you ever get a handle on him, to get those books where he actually talks about many of the things that they did. Some of the guys here that you'll find in history that are pretty easy to, uh, in some of the books that you can get, uh, just to give you an idea, a guy by the name of Paul the Simple, uh, it starts out with the basic and then goes to the extreme. Uh, he basically said 300 prayers a day, which is exactly what the Catholic Church has you do today, you know, in the Hail Mary, when you go to, for, uh, go to confession. Uh, Isidorus of Alexandria, he was a vegetarian. He ate no meat. Polythemy spent three years alone in, uh, in an unwatered desert, drinking only and licking the dew uh, off, the, off the leaves. Uh, Marcius lay six months naked in the desert and allowed the gnats and the flies to to cover his body, all thinking that it's going to, and I know it sounds crazy, but this is what they did. Behetheus had worms crawling out of his teeth uh, after all the years of decay and the things that he did. There was a guy by the name of Simon Stylitis, and uh, down the line, uh, he uh, he did some pretty amazing things, uh, goofy-wise, but uh, he had unwashed abscesses full of worms, and they never took care of them. Just, again, the pain that he would go through hoping that it would somehow make peace with God, therefore God would give them the peace that they're looking for. And of course, you know, that never happened. A little bit later on, he was the guy that, that b- believed that he was our first Christian flagpole sitter. He believed that through his life that uh, for over 30 years, he, sh- he stood on different length poles, starting at 20 and then 40 and then finally 50 feet high, thinking that that would get him closer to God. And of course, none of that worked either. Um, this was all done, uh, you know, to give oneself to God, to separate from the world uh, and all of its vices. But of course, you know, the great biblical principles come in here that we, we always deal with when we deal with people. And human nature is always the same and the flesh is always the same. You know, fleshly problems don't go away just because uh, you do something to the flesh. What has to be done to your flesh to change your flesh has to be done supernaturally. And, uh, you know, people think that, you know, changing geographical locations solves our personal problems. And, of course, that's not true. You'll have somebody that goes through some tough time and they'll say, well, if I could just, you know, move out of town, I'll get a fresh start. Well, you may move your body out of town, but everything that you didn't deal with back home is still in your mind and you deal with it wherever you go. And that's what the case here. Fleshly problems, fleshly problems can't go away by doing fleshly things. And of course, you can't get closer to God and get holy living in a cave or, or dealing with your flesh without dealing with the Bible. And that's why the sin and depravity was horrible among the men. Uh, as sin and corruption uh, went on, it drove these poor guys to even more things. And then they'd cut themselves, they'd whip themselves, they'd beat themselves. Uh, they would do greater things to themselves to try to get out from under the flesh that was so plaguing them. And of course, uh, it just never happened. And this is why you see, even to this day, and you know, what you hear in the newspaper and what you see, I, I said this before, what you see in the newspapers and what you hear, um, you know, on the news aspect about the homosexuality and the child abuse among Catholic priests, let me tell you something. If, if we only knew the, the depth of all of what goes on, and it all, it all is there today just like it was back here because they try to, uh, they try to believe that they can, they can squelch their, 
God-given uh, sexual desires by being not marrying and then going to a seminary or a monastery or whatever with just men and, uh, you know, and then just pray through and find holiness with God. And, of course, human nature, uh, human nature doesn't do that. I mean, anybody wants to see the prison system of a guy that in, in a hardcore five, number five lockdown prison, homosexuality is rampant because when you put men together and they can't get women, the natural process is going to be over a time as you degenerate, it's just going to happen. And that's exactly what took place and still is taking place in the Roman Catholic Church. And that's why it's so absolutely uh, rife today that um, it's, 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 it's worldwide. It's not just America. It's not just Germany and Spain. It's every country and every monastery, and it's been that way uh, for uh, all the way back through church history. It's just that we mask it better now. But the truth of the matter is it's always been an issue, and it's been an issue because you cannot do these things to... Uh, and get some kind of peace with God. Your flesh just won't let you. Another couple of the things that you want to remember about this, when you go back in church history and you see all the cutting and the whipping and the beating and the, and the greater things that they do to their flesh, you see some traces of this back in the Bible that always show you uh, where you find it, that it has to do with demonic activity. And the passages that you'll want will be 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 28. You don't have to turn back to it. But you want to put that in your notes because that's where when Elisha goes up, the 400 prophets of Baal that are the prophets with Jezebel and Ahab, and they're trying to bring the sacrifice in and they're kind of having a little uh, contest over the thing when they, of who can bring the fire down and whoever does, your God will be the God. Well, they can't get their fire to come down. So in the process, uh, they, they resort to doing exactly what the priest did. They cut themselves um, and they, they hurt themselves because of the fact that that's part of, uh, of a demonic uh, influence in a, in a scenario. And, of course, the other one is there in Mark chapter 5, verse 5, and that's where you have the, the maniac that came out out of the tombs. Uh, we're obviously not going to get into it tonight, and you don't really need to worry about it, but there's about nine or ten characteristics of demon possession that you find uh, in these passages here, and when you uh, put them out and you see them as, as the Bible lays them out, they just kind of like a little reader meter. Of when you hit nine out of ten or twelve, I mean, you're 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 pegging the needle. Uh, and we're dealing with people, and you'll find that uh, many of them are exactly what you find with the monks here in the monasteries. Um, they're very religious. They uh, they go through great pains of of hurting themselves. All that is a mark of demonic activity. And, uh, you know, all this was a result of an institution, the Roman Catholic Church, that demanded total obedience and work to gain heaven. And, of course, they wanted to be, again, like I talked about Sunday, here's a place where, and, and, and this is a concept that you young leaders really need to focus on and, 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 and see it in, in work and play in everything that you do. And that is the concept of what is Christian and what is spiritual versus what is biblical and what is scriptural. They're in a situation that is Christian. They're in a situation that is uh, spiritual. I mean, what, what more spiritual could you want? To be in a monastery and pray to God all day long. But it's not biblical and it's not scriptural. And therefore, it became the thing that destroyed them. 
much like, you know, just in everything else that we're going to see. Uh, Jerome himself, who produced the Latin Vulgate, we had talked about him earlier, he was a monk and he was trained by this same system. And, uh, but of course, none of this can be found in any Bible in print in any part of the world other than a King James Bible. And of course, when you go back and you, um, you look at, uh, like I said, 1 Kings 18, uh, there's Mark, uh, Mark 5, but there's three or four different accounts uh, in the Gospels that all show you the same thing. And uh, this is the trait of Ahab's religion. It's no accident that in Revelation, and we talked about it last time, that we saw the prophetess Jezebel. So in this same time in church history, we find her prophets, the priests, cutting and abusing themselves, just like we go back to 1 Kings and find them doing it back there, the prophets of Baal, uh, back in 1 Kings. So it's the same system. Yet at the same time, and we've not talked much about this uh, to this point, but we're going to start looking at these more, uh, you're going to find that there are some groups that, uh, as the church begins to grow and solidify, Catholic Church, and begins to really uh, get itself uh, in a in a order that it can really function now as a church. Uh, there's some groups that are singled out for their heresy, and uh, and persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church, and these groups are all condemned uh, at the different councils we have down through history. And, um, you know, they're groups that you need to know about. Their, their writings are banned. Uh, many of them are killed. Uh, many of them are persecuted. You're going to find out here as we move on that many times when Rome aligns itself with the nations and the, through the church-state religions, whole armies go out and destroy Christians. And it's, a, it's something that, you know, it's a, it's a pretty incredible time. And, you know, a number of these groups uh, we've talked about before. We've talked about the Manichians. They're a very early group. Uh, they start around 180 or 200, and they move right up through into the Dark Ages. And uh, you're going to find that uh, there's a group called the Pelagians, uh, P-E-L-A-G-I-A-N-S. And um, you're going to find that there's a group called the Monetists, and they fought a guy by the name of Montana. You're going to find uh, uh, a group called the Novatians. They follow a man by the name of Novatius. You're going to find uh, ones that are called uh, uh, Donatists. They follow a man by the name of Dante. Uh, Paterinians, that's another group. And these are groups, basically, just so you get an understanding. As the Roman Catholic Church began to be formed, even really before it was formed, we know now by looking back from our past process through church history, that even before the Roman Catholic Church came into being in 325 with Constantine, we know these things, these bad teachings were floating around. We know the Bible was already corrupted by 180 with origin, so it's, and all of these weird things are coming up, baptism, regeneration, and they're, they're floating into the churches, much like things float into our church today, or churches today. And you can get on the radio or you can go, you can go to a, uh, you know, a Christian bookstore and you can buy Christian books that have to do with Christian thought and they'll bring up everything in the world, everything in the world, every weird deal that you can figure out that has nothing to do with the Bible uh, is working its way back into churches today. And, you know, they were smart enough back then to know what the Bible said to keep out the bad teaching and to stay with what the true teachings was. And that's, of course, that's where Christianity falls down today. 
So you had guys like Nestorius and, and Dante and, and uh, Montanus. They are pastors. They're men who are pastoring New Testament local churches in the first 200 years, 200, 300 years of Christianity. And, of course, uh, they're men who they have people who follow them. And the norm of Christianity is now is embracing all these new things like baptism, regeneration. Each one of them deal with their, with their own different groups. Many of these men did not, just took a stand against the, uh, the Gnostic movement. Many of them took a stand against the uh, aspect of the denying the deity of Christ or baptism regeneration, which began to be floating around back there. And these guys basically went against the mainstream. When all of Bible Christianity back then was amalgamating into a big soft bowl of jello that was going to come out on the other end in the shape of the Roman Catholic Church, these guys held the line. They knew their Bibles. They knew what the Bible doctrines were, and they weren't going to compromise it. And so they took a stand, and many of them led their people out of the established religion that was beginning to be formed, or at least corrupting Christianity at that particular point in time. And for this, uh, they were severely persecuted. You're going to find, you're going to find, and this is, a, this is an absolute true statement, you're going to find that all down through church, the true tribal believers, when they're persecuted and they're accused of being heretics, they're always tagged with the person that they're following. That's just a rule of thumb. They called it an Adonatus because Dante said, we're not going to fool around with this stuff and we're going to stay true to the Bible. So he led his people away from the, from the corrupt crowd and they got tagged liberals or, or heretics and they called them Donatists. A Novatius was the same way. So they called his people Novatians. Every one of those early groups, Mane was another one. They got called the Manichians. They got tagged with a heresy of following a man. And that is, that is, a, that is the absolute key mark down through church history of the true biblical line. They would not stand for all that was going on. And you're going to find that uh, uh, they're, they're, all of them, uh, you know, the, all of them believe that uh, uh, the Bible is the Word of God. I mean, there, there are many groups in a span all through history. A little bit later on, they're called the Hussites, uh, Catherii, Waldensians, Albigensians, Huguenots. I mean, the list is endless. But they come from all different parts of Europe, all different time periods in Europe. Many of them did not even have a Bible. I think probably in the height of the Dark Ages, if not all the way through the Dark Ages, there was probably one Bible for, I'd say, every 10,000 people. You were lucky if you ever had a Bible. When you went to church and they preached, they preached from memory, or maybe they had a piece of the Scriptures that they all copied down, and that's all they had because the Roman Catholic Church was taking them all. But there's where, you know, that's so far from where we're at with bookshelf of Bibles over there. We all got one here and probably five more at home. We can't even relate to that kind of concept. But it gives new purpose and new meaning to the Bible when it says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. They took it much more seriously than probably even we do today. Well, I'm sure they did. But there's many groups and they have many things in common. But I told you before that the true church... The true church is never defined by what it calls itself. And this is something that people just can't get. They just can't get. The true church of Jesus Christ is never defined by what it calls itself, but rather what it believes. And these churches, these men, Donatists, Catherii, Polyssians, Hussites, 
you know, wherever you're at. They're all called by different names, but that's not what made them the true church. What they made them the true church is what they believed. And they all follow the same, what we call, I call anyhow, the Baptistic doctrines that we follow. Every one of them, no matter where they were and where you start from 180 to 500 to 1,000, they all, were, all of them were premillennial in their, in their doctrine. They all believed in the literal return of Jesus Christ. They all believed in a rapture. They all believed in everything just the way you and I believe it. They also all believed that the Bible is the final authority, even though maybe they didn't have one. They all believed that and they knew that. And they also knew that the only one that was the true text that was God's word was the text that came out of Antioch. Now, they didn't have a King James Bible. In fact, the Bible was not even written in a book form at this time. The Bible's not printed in a book form till the Gutenberg Bible, which is uh, printed when Gutenberg did the press, which is way before this. These are things that are done by hand. And that's another reason why there's not a lot of them. And you take the Roman Catholic Church burning them and destroying them and even going in places and buying them and then destroying them and then confiscating them when they find them. They're, what you've got is a bunch of pieces of the Bible floating around, but very few whole Bibles. And uh, it's a thing where they all know that the text is they have is from Antioch. They all believe that salvation is through the blood of Christ. They all believe that... Uh, uh, and reject infant baptism. They all reject baptism, regeneration in any form. They are all soul winners. And I mean, they're great soul winners. This was the mode back then. I mean, soul winning was the only way. They didn't have any tracks. They didn't have any text messages. They didn't have any way of getting the message out. It was mouth to mouth. And there are some great, great soul winners during this period of time that really, um, uh, that Christianity was another whole breed back then. They reject the all-millennial and post-millennial teachings that was formulating and later became the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. When they meet someone who claims to be a Christian, they'll take the next 90 minutes and grill him on the above doctrinal issues and find out if he is or he isn't. In other words, they do what the Bible says in First or Second John. It says to try the spirits, and then they proved all things. They, they didn't just take anybody's word for it. Of course, they couldn't. And then one of the last things that they all... They all believed that Rome, every one of them, knew that Rome was Satan's church. It's incredible. Uh, they all knew that, uh, that the Roman Catholic Church was the bride of Satan and his church, just as the true church was the bride of Christ. So these are the doctrines that they held to that were severely persecuted for. And uh, this is what makes the backbone of what you and I believe today. Everything that they believe, we believe, without exception. And uh, many times, uh, though not to anywhere even near the degree, you will be persecuted for believing the Bible, believing what you believe in face of all the heresy that's being swirling around out in Bible Christianity today. The Roman Catholic Church bans these groups as heretics. And then as time goes on, they literally declare open war on them uh, without, without mercy and kills them and destroys their Bibles wherever they can find them. Not one of these groups would, would ever walk across the street to get a copy of Jerome's Bible or, or anything out of those manuscripts. They knew the difference. And, of course, unlike us, they were willing to die for it, and many of them did. The Bible at this time, for Europe, anyhow, for main Europe, would be a, 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 the Greek Old Testament and the Old Latin and the Old Syriac. 
The old Latin comes in about 120. Latin is African. Sometimes it's called the Coptic Bible. Uh, the old Syriac is out of Syria, of Antioch. And that'll be about 150, about 160. Up through the Dark Ages, this is the Bibles that they had, whenever they had, or pieces of them, or however it worked. It was either an old Latin or an old Syriac. This became the Bible of the Dark Ages. And then, you know, when we come into this time, again, we need to look at uh, some more of the uh, church fathers. We talked about the uh, the uh, uh, anti-Nicene, the post-Nicene, and the Nicene church fathers. And now we're going to come up to, we're past Nicaea. So let's look at some of the, a uh, little bit of overlap here, but let's look at some of the post-Nicene fathers and try to get the scope of where they're at with everything. We already talked about Augustine. We know him. He's about, but he's a kingpin here. He really gets the ball rolling. He's about 354 to 430. And he's the guy, we talked about him, who sets up the Roman Catholic uh, Church. And he writes the book, City of Our God, which really set, sets Rome up in the place where she's really now going to be, you know, the city that God's going to reach the world through. And, of course, he begins to set up many of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. And I told you that the concept of Calvinism really starts with him. Then we have a guy, and I don't think we talked about him before. <clears throat> His name is Ambrose. And uh, he's big in church history. He's about 340 to 391, just kind of bringing us up to uh, where we're at here. <clears throat> and uh, Ambrose is really the guy who puts a lot of money into printing Origins works. He's the guy that uh, basically uh, the, got the money bags behind to getting Origins stuff out and get it going. He made a quote one time, and he said, nothing can be found in this world more exalted than a priest or more sublime than a bishop. And, of course, he's talking in the sense of, of the forerunning of the Roman Catholic Church. Then we have, and we've talked about him too, Jerome, 340 to 420, kind of bringing us up here, Roman Catholic monk who translates the Alexandrian manuscripts into the official Latin version of the Roman Catholic Church, which bears his name, Jerome's Latin Vulgate. His Bible, and he's important because his Bible is the Bible that the Roman Catholic Jews uses all down through the Dark Ages. It isn't until around 1,200 or something that they come up with the Douay Reims. And uh, the Jerome's Latin is going to be their Bible, just like the old Latin. And you want to remember, and I've told you this before, the old Latin and Jerome's Latin are not the same Bible. People will tell you they are, but they're not. Jerome's Latin was off the manuscripts out of, uh, or, out of uh, Origin in Alexandria, and the old Latin was off of the... Uh, text out of Antioch. So you want to remember that. We have a guy by the name of San Anthony. He's around 356. He lived 25 years in a dead man's tomb for Christ's sake and lived to be 105. And um, he died uh, in all good old Roman Catholic fashion. And, um, you know, uh, it's just typical of what's going on at this particular time. I told you about Simon Stylitis. That's 390 to 459. And uh, he founded the Holy Order of Flagpole Sitters. And uh, we talked about him. I think one of the, one of the uh, key elements here uh, coming into the Dark Ages is um, uh, Gregory the Great. And he's Pope Gregory the Great, 540 to 604. You'll find that when you start to go back in history, and especially Roman Catholic history, uh, and even even Buxleaf Schaff and, and Newell and some of those guys, 
that he's given the, he's called Rome's greatest pope. And he is a key figure in history that you're going to bump into a lot. And he's called Rome's greatest pope, yet he's responsible for over 50,000 Christians killed uh, at one time in what has commonly been called St. Bar- Bartholomew Massacre. Massacre. And uh, he, uh, he really led a lot of persecution against the Bible-believing groups. It's always been interesting, and I talked to you about Philip Schaff and his style of how he approaches things in church history, which is not a biblical style. And he's called by Philip Schaff in volume 4, page 212, uh, as one of the greatest religious leaders of all time. And things like that are, are pretty common. You remember Billy Graham... Uh, a number of years ago, 10 years ago anyhow, uh, called Pope Paul and thought Pope Paul was the greatest, one of the greatest Christian leaders that ever lived. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing how guys can get to that point. And, uh, you know, Pope Leo was committed to pagan ideas and tradition. Uh, he had no more use for the Word of God than, you know, than, than anybody else in the Roman Catholic Church. And his first act as pope was to raise an army to kill a group called Lombards. And the Lombards were a Bible-believing group from Italy, North Italy. And uh, they were a group that was a very strong group, very Bible-based. And uh, I talked about, we talked about the, the mass becoming into effect last time. Uh, and I gave you the date when that basically came in and became part of the official Roman Catholic Church canon. But the, uh, the idea of that is given to a guy by the name of Paschasius Redbutus, P-A-S-C-H-A-S-I-U-S, R-A-D-B-E-R-T-U-S, 800-865 A.D. And he's the one that's responsible for the theory of transubstantiation. In other words, he's the one that first put forth the the aspect that a priest had the power to change that wafer into the literal body of Christ and then to change the wine into the uh, literal blood of Christ. And that's where it starts with him. And, uh, you know, this doctrine, believe it or not, and it's kind of funny when you read it in history and people think you're making it up, but it's, it's absolutely documented all down through history. It's kind of hilarious. This brought up all kinds of problems for the priest. And because the priest then, if he really believed, which they do, that the wafer becomes the body of Christ uh, and, the, and the booze becomes the real blood of Christ, you know, what do you do if, you know, if you drop the wafer and Jesus Christ falls on the floor? Say, I mean, you just can't pick him up like you would anybody else, obviously. And then there were times that what they did when uh, there were certain Bible believers that would actually poison the communion wine. So when they trained at the thing and the priest drank it, he dropped over dead. So they had to, they had to deal with that, come up with issues to that. One of the big theological issues that they had to deal with was what to do if a mouse or a rat eats the body or drinks the blood. Is the rat have eternal life? And you're laughing at those things, but those are issues that they had to thrash out once you make those kind of deals, and it's, it's really funny. Uh, I really, uh, you know, and believe it or not, a really big problem was what to do. You know, people had, back then they didn't have false teeth, 
Uh, in some cases, later on, they had wooden teeth that they put in. If you ever saw George Washington's. But, uh, you know, without teeth, sometimes one of the problems that came up, what do you do if the host of Jesus Christ, his body gets stuck on the roof of your mouth? Uh, what, how do you deal with that, you know? Because the whole idea is here that you can't touch it, see? So you got a problem. The solution to this is found in a Roman Catholic uh, book written in 1906 to 1910 by Archbishop John F. M. Faley on page 156 and 166, and also again on page 149 of the book called uh, Cavitist. And it says you're to dig the remains of Jesus Christ out of, the, out of your teeth or the roof of your mouth with a knife and put it in water and then let it dissolve and then drink it. And that's the official stand on it from Archbishop John M. Faley uh, on how to deal with it. And stuff like that, it just goes all down through history. And that's the funny side of it. But it's, it, to them, it's true. Most people don't know this or that a Roman Catholic, but if a Roman Catholic priest, once he, once he, once he turns that Mogan David into the real blood of Christ, if he drops that cup or that cup wine spills on the floor, there is an eight-hour processional process to clean God's blood up off the floor, which is, includes that priest licking it up off the floor because of his dropping the holiness of God's blood on the floor. And that's, that's just where it's at. Now, you don't get those things just being your everyday Catholic, but, I mean, that's just, that's just what it is. And uh, we have John of Damascus, 675 to, to 749. He's called the father of, of scholasticism. And uh, he says that Mary appeared to him on many occasions and taught him much. And uh, he's caught up into image worship and all the other stuff, but he's one of the ones you'll find down through there. Another prope is, is called Leo the Great. And he's 440 to 461. And uh, he really sets up the office of the pope and he kind of makes it fly. Uh, he's, he has all the, uh, uh, he has uh, really the get the thing up and running. And, you know, a little side note, you, you start reading in the Roman Catholic Church, and you see it in many places, but they all start attaching the word great to their name. You know, Gregory the Great, Leo the Great, you know, and uh, you even find that, you know, in some places in Christianity, the way they use his word. But you've got to remember, the word great is always given in the Bible to a worldly man. I mean, when you talk about, and it, it always blew my mind, and even today with preachers, you know, they want to pretend they're like the Apostle Paul because that's a good thing. It's like all the presidents want to pretend they're Harry Truman or Ronald Reagan, you know, and as time goes on, you know, we look back at the legacy and everybody likes those guys, so we want to associate that so people will vote for us because we'll think we'll be like them. Well, you know, preachers do the same thing many, many times, so do many Christians, uh, you know, we, we, we one of us, preachers want to associate themselves like, like the apostles, you know. And, of course, um, the word great was never given to Peter, James, John, or Paul. Uh, the difference is you find the word servant, you find them in prison, you find them a bond slave. Uh, Peter says, I'm chief of sinners, uh, servant of servants, uh, you know, accursed like Paul did. But you never find the word great. 
And it's something that just, you know, that you always want to remember. It's Luke chapter 16, verse 15. It's a great verse. I've always followed it and watched it very carefully. It simply says this. That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I touched on this Sunday, and I certainly won't get into it tonight, but you ought to take some time the word abomination which we know to be a terrible thing. Probably we look at, would ask, we would think at that the word abomination is probably the epitome of the worst thing that could happen. And uh, we would never look at us being, uh, or think about us being an abomination. But you ought to sometime go through the New Testament and find out how the word is used. And you'll find that most of the things that God's people do are abominable to God. And it's a credible study. And here's one of them, you know, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In other words, if the whole Christian world thinks it's good, then it probably stinks. And that's just a good rule to follow. Pope uh, Leo the Great, he, like I said, he sets up the office of Pope and gets it going. He has all the, he encourages all the popes down through the secession line to murder for God's glory. He passes out favors and medals for killing heretics. And of course, Heretic is anybody that's not a Catholic. Uh, he called himself uh, the, the spiritual leader of the whole world. Nice, humble guy. But, uh, you know, you see how it goes all the way down through there. Then we have some good men. And uh, they do a great job, but it's hard to find them because they're so greatly overshadowed by the Roman Catholic Church. And it's hard in history to go back, and we'll, we'll talk about why in just a little bit. But there's a book you got to try to find, if you can find it at some point. It's way out of print. Uh, four or five years ago, I taught John Christensen and Betsy came over to my house every Wednesday night, and we went through church history together. And I mentioned this, uh, and two weeks later, John had found two copies of the book on the Internet, bought himself one and gave me one. What you pay for those on them? Remember? Wasn't a whole lot, was it? No. And it's a book put out by Edmonds. And uh, I think it was published in 1933. But it's a book called uh, The Light in the Dark Ages. And it's a great little book that tells you about these guys. Now, if you look up here in our chart, you know, uh, you got a lot of them. And a lot of these guys up here that I'm going to talk about, you'll see up here. Not maybe all of them, but they're here. You got uh, Bernard of Sinia. You got Henry of Lausanne. You got Talcum. You got Lothard. You got Robert of Abyssinia. You got Peter the Hermit, uh, Rudolph of Saxony, uh, Vincent Ferrer. Uh, you got uh, all of these guys listed up here are all great men who do a great job in preaching and carrying on the gospel. And uh, you got guys from Norway like Hagen the Good. Uh, you got a guy by the name of Boniface. And these guys are they're greatly overshadowed today. And you don't find a lot about them, and it's hard to find a lot about them. Back when, like in the 30s, and it's probably at the turn of the century and beyond that, they were easy to get a handle on because there were still people writing those things. But as a Christian church went into apostasy and got away from the Bible, you know, this is where we lose our roots, and this is why it's so important for us to understand, you know, where it all comes from and how we tie into these guys. Yeah. Good men because they followed the true line or good men that were in the Roman No, they're good men that followed the true line. No, they preached the word of God. One of them is by the name of John Christendom, uh, C-H-R-Y-O-S-O-S-T-O-M. And he's about 407 A.D. He's called the Golden Mouth. 
and he's from Antioch. And all of these guys are basically either street preachers, win people to Christ. Um, they've got the true line. They've never really been associated with, with Rome in a sense that they're not monks or, or any of that or, or priests. They're just true Bible believers that were in whatever country they were in. And uh, they really, really, really just did a job. John Christentum uh, was probably the greatest preacher of the Syrian Greek church. And, of course, the Syrian Greek church kept the Receptus out of Antioch. That's what they kept. They kept the right text. Uh, and he was born there and was converted and baptized under New Testament conditions. In other words, Bible-based. As he grew and started preaching, he preached against the sins of the church and its leader. That would be the Roman church. And then, uh, and, there, and then preached about their departing from the Bible. You know, these guys weren't just getting up and giving three-point outlines in a poem. They were preaching much like I preach today about the church leaving the true word of God, and they were putting it out there. I mean, these guys, they had issues that they were very passionate about that were biblical issues, and they are laying it on the line of what the leaders of the church are doing that is against the Bible and how they're deceiving the people. <laughs> Suffice it to say, they were not very popular people. In case, in his case, you know, uh, uh, he's banished in exile under armed guard, and he dies in exile in 407. But he believed nothing that the Roman Catholic Church ever taught, and he rejected the Alexandrian manuscripts, and uh, he was an avid soul winner. And, uh, you know, it, these are the kind of guys that you have. We have another one called Columbiana, and he's 521 to 597, and he's another one of the lights in the Dark Ages. He, this guy's teaching and training missionaries and winning souls He's a Bible-believing Bible teacher who represents the light that is still out there even though we're in the darkness. And, uh, you know, you'll find that, uh, uh, again, you know, the Roman Catholic Church comes back and he talks, they talk about how that he was pro-Catholic in his teaching. He was never pro-Catholic in his teaching, but this is what the Roman Catholic Church does. I'm going to show it to you here in, in, a, in, a, in just a little bit. I think one of the greatest men in this particular time that most people know nothing about or really don't understand how it really was, um, was not only a soul winner, but he was a great missionary during the eerie, early years of the Dark Ages. And his name was Patricius. And he lives about 389 to 465. He's buried in Ireland in a little town called Downpatrick number of years ago when I went to Ireland, uh, my main one of my goals was to go to Downpatrick, and there's an old Celtic church that probably was built there in the, uh, oh, I don't know, the 800s or 900s, uh, you know, and uh, maybe even before that, but uh, you walk in that, down there, and there's an old graveyard that's been there for Lord knows how long, and down there in one of the rows, there's a, there's a little tombstone that simply reads, Patrick. And then it says after him, the Apostle of Ireland. And we call him today St. Patrick. And of course, every March 17th, we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. That was not his birthday, by the way. And of course, everybody on March 17th wears green uh, on his day every year. 
Well, old St. Pat, he was a saint, all right, but he wasn't a saint in the Roman Catholic Church standard. He was born the son of a deacon and the grandson of a priest. He grew, uh, as he grew, he was, uh, grew up, he was carried away as a slave, but later escaped and returned to Ireland. As he grew, he, he preached and, and won thousands to Christ. He's accredited with starting over 700 churches in 55 years of his ministry. Now, this is in the dark ages. You don't read about this any place in church history unless you know where to look. As the Roman Catholic Church was setting up her damnable heresies and turning out the lights in Europe, he was training missionary teams of 12 people and sending them all over Europe and Asia. He would never baptize a baby. He wouldn't spit on Jerome's Latin Vulgate, and he was a Bible believer, uh, and his Bible was the one out of Antioch. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men just like him that nobody ever heard about. God's always got his faithful remnant. I don't care where it's at. I don't care if it's in the tribulation period with the nation of Israel. I don't care if it's us now, me and you, in the Laodicean church age, or you go back to the dark ages. We're in another dark ages today, if you don't know it or not. History always repeats itself. And just like they took the word of God back in 500 AD that lasts for a thousand years, you know, and put the world into darkness, we now are in another dark ages today because there is no Bible today and the same system that took it back then has come back around full circle and taken it again. I'm going to show you how that happened later on down the line. It won't be tonight, but uh, when we get to it, it's an incredible study. History always repeats itself. And, of course, uh, today there was much said, uh, much myth about and legend about St. Patrick. And uh, but the truth is uh, it's, it's, it's really hard to find but he was never a Roman Catholic. He was, never, he was never connected with the church. He wasn't even canonized by the Roman Catholic Church till 400 years after his death. But that's typical. That way they can say he was a good Roman Catholic, and as time goes on and people become more stupid than they already are, uh, they'll just take it. Let me show you what this is here. Come over to Matthew. I'll show you how this thing works. Somebody said one time the greatest book written against the Roman Catholic Church was not a book written by man, but it was a book written by God. Boy, that's so true. This is why the Roman Catholic Church hates the book of Revelation, always has. That's why you'll find that uh, when you and I teach the book of Revelation, uh, we teach uh, John writing it in 90 A.D., and that's the standard date that's taught because that's when he done it. When the Roman Catholic Church teaches it, He'll tell you that he did that in 60 A.D. And the reason why he'll tell you that John wrote it in 60 A.D. is because if he wrote it in 60 A.D., then all the destruction that's taken place in the book of Revelation can be pointed to Titus coming down and destroying Jerusalem. If it's written after 70 A.D., you know who it points to? The destruction of the Roman Catholic Church, the second coming of Christ. That's why they hate it. Why they hate it. All right, Matthew chapter 23 is one of the greatest chapters against the Roman Catholic Church. And everything in here is against the Roman Catholic Church, which are typified in the New Testament by the scribes and the Pharisees, because Roman Catholics are scribes and Pharisees uh, in that sense. Now look at verse 9, Matthew 23, 9. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Now that's not talking about your daddy, that's talking about in a religious sense. 
So clearly right out of the chute, you're told to call no man father on this earth in a religious sense. Neither be called master, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is the greatest among you shall be, the, be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. See that, how that differs between great Leo the Great and Gregory the Great? The Bible just says the opposite. But here we go. Verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. He says, you stop other people from going to heaven, and you're not even going yourself. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widow houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. There it is. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold of the temple that sanctifieth the gold, and whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift of the altar, or sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him dwelleth therein. And he shall swear in heaven, sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay uh, tithe, a mint, and anus, and cumin, and have omitted the weighter matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, faith, these ought to have been done, and you leave the other undone. You blind guide with strain of a gnat, and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. They're talking about their churches and their body, but within are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind, thou blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within. The cup and the platter that is without them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, for you are like whited sepulchers. Sepulchers a tomb. See, sepulchers a tomb. For ye are like the whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead man bones and of all uncleanliness. And of course, that's, uh, that's a picture of their church. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. There's your child molestation. There's your, all the things that you talk, find out about. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous. That's what he did with Patrick right there. He was dead for 400 years. They, they, garnished his, they garnished his sepulcher, and they built the tombs of the prophets, and they made him a saint when he had nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church in any way, shape, or form. That's what they do. That's what they do. That's what they do. And, of course, that's one of the greatest chapters anywhere you're going to find. Old St. Pat would get him a drum and he'd go out in the street corner or out into a wood someplace and where all the tribes were living over there in Ireland and he'd beat that drum till he had a crowd and then he'd preach the fire out of them right across the plate waist high and tell them how to get saved. If he were alive today, he'd be right next to Ian Paisley over there in North Ireland on the same street corner. And of course, he was, a, he was an incredible guy not even connected with the Roman Catholic Church in any way, shape, or form. Well, the dark ages come in. 
and the Roman Catholic Church marches down through the centuries, murdering and killing and spreading hell and superstition wherever she goes. During this time period, we have the Black Death that comes across Europe, and we talked about that when we read the passage. Kills millions of people. Find it in Revelation 2.23 in this period of church history. And the Jews don't get it. Uh, they get spared it, but then they get blamed for it by the superstitious Catholic Church. The reason they don't get it, and I've told you this many, many times, is because they're following the cleansing laws out of the Old Testament that talks about washing their hands in running water to get the germs off, where the Europeans were washing in water bowls and just spreading the germs around. But, of course, they got blamed for it. And the time of the Dark Ages and the Black Death is man's darkest hour in history. There's no doctors. There's no medicine. When the Black Plague was done sweeping across Europe, and this is God's way of, of cleaning out and keeping everything balanced. When, God, uh, when the Black Plague swept across Europe, there wasn't enough live people to bury the dead people. And, uh, but it's man's darkest hour in history and all brought about by the hellish perverted doctrine of the uh, Mother Church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Another thing that we see coming in this time that we all can relate to and just, just kind of helps us put it into context is what we call the feudal system comes in. And it operates, basically operates like this. You know, the kings reigned over the kingdom and then the knights of old who were bold, you know, they fought and protected the kingdom. And then anybody who had, uh, was on the bottom or anybody else was on the bottoms with the, you know, if anybody who's seen, uh, uh, read the books, you know, Tales of King Arthur or Robin Hood, you know, uh, Camelot, Sir Galahad, Prince Valiant, you know, the Knights of the Round Table, Lady Marian, the Black Knight. That's all during this period of time. The kings are on top, the lords over underneath them, and then all the masses, the serfs underneath. And uh, you know what? The common people work to feed the king. The king gives back a little bit to the people, but he keeps it all. And then he has the lords that reign over the land and the manors and all of that stuff. And it's, it's just the way it goes. When you start to hear about the, uh, remember when the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, oh, what was the movie that came out about the, uh, Christ, uh, the, the what? The, the who? No, not, no, it was the one about with Tom Hanks in it that they were looking for the, uh, the Da Vinci Code, yeah, the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, all that goes back to this period of time. Whenever you hear about the Teutonic Knights, whenever you hear about the Templar Knights, uh, that'll all be going back to the Dark Ages. The Templar Knights and the uh, Knights of the, uh, the uh, uh, Teutonic Knights were all uh, connected with the Roman Catholic Church. In other words, the Pope would grant them favor, they would do whatever they needed to do for the Pope, and then when the Pope was done with them, he'd have them killed, and he'd bring up another group. And so whenever you hear that stuff, it all goes back to this period of time. Uh, and this, this forms the system that we know too well today with the big guys on the top and the little guys on the bottom. And, you know, not much chance for advancement or promotion. This system is basically nothing more than the modern-day world powers of, under Rome of totalitarianism. And um, it's, it's all that it is. It's all that it is. Fascism, the Muslims, Nazism, uh, socialism, communism, humanism, they all follow the same totalitarian sh concept. 
A few on the top who live good while the rest of the worker ants should suffer and keep everything running. All totalitarian systems are all alike and they're all dictatorships and they're all formed and built after the greatest totalitarian system the world has ever seen, the Roman Catholic Church. And when the Bible says that she is the mother of harlots, boy, that is an understatement. That is an understatement. But then we come to another point in history in 768. You want to mark this one down. This is another important thing. One of the things that I want to do as we come through church history is there's several of things I want you to obviously come away with and know. One of them, obviously, the biggest one is where you got your Bible from. We have not yet even got into the manuscript evidence side. We will. You have a pretty good understanding now of Antioch and Alexandria origin and all that crowd. So that's one of the things I want you to get through here. I obviously want you to understand the roots of you from the pure biblical line, the Novatians and the Nestorians, the Monichians and all that crowd, and we'll keep chipping away at that and working at that down too. But another thing I want you to learn through here is I want you to learn and understand where all the different churches, religions, faith, denominations come from because that's vital because we get the idea today that, you know, there's much confusion on that. And uh, the first uh, point in history here is in 768 with a king of, called Charlemagne. And um, Charlemagne comes on the throne in 768. And this guy is a pagan who linked the Roman church and the Roman state. And he, his, 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 what he did in history is almost on the same par of what Constantine did. Not quite, but almost. It certainly was the finishing icing on the cake. Because when Charlemagne came to the throne, the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic State are two different groups working together, but they're not tied together. Yeah. What Rome? Well, I mean, what country was he? He was, he was, a, he was, uh, the, he was the Caesar of Rome, the political side of it, yeah. And he was the guy that uh, ran the, the state of Rome, the country of Rome. And obviously the Pope Rome ruled the religious system of Rome. The two had not been formally put together yet, see? And this is what happens with Charlemagne. He, he, he officiates at the wedding, so to speak, of putting the two together. What happens is this, and you, this is pretty much, pretty much easy history to get. Um, in 799, Pope Leo is kicked out and almost killed and has to flee Rome. And so what he does is he runs to, uh, to Charlemagne. Uh, sometimes he's called Charles de Gross. Um, I just simply call him Big Chuck. I mean, he was, he was the king. I think he's ruling in France when he, this is all happening. But anyway, he's over the whole thing. And he runs to Charles to get for help. And Big Chuck, you know, gets an army up and goes back and puts him back on the throne. Puts him in his little high chair, tucks his little bib in, gives him his bottle back, and, uh, and goes and whips all the people that are trying to hurt him. Now, to show his gratitude, Pope Leo... takes a crown of gold. And on Christmas Day, 800 A.D., Merry Christmas, for the whole assembled world, 
To show his gratitude, Pope Leo puts a crown of gold on his head as old Carl de Grosch kneels before the Pope, and the Pope cries out for all to hear, Charles Augustus, crowned by God. Get that? Pretty neat, huh? Charles Augustus, crowned by God. Crowned by God. From this point on in history, the Church of Rome and the State of Rome are now one, and now it's called the Holy Roman Empire. Before, it was called the Holy Roman Church. Now, it's the Holy Roman Empire because the church and the state are now married and united together through this act. Obviously, as always, the Pope gets the best deal because he gets to be God. Big Chuck just got to be the king. And uh, under the divine arrangement from this point on, now the Pope gets to choose who's going to be king So he has complete control over everything because the Pope now, as a religious leader, decides by divine appointment who's going to be the king or Caesar. And uh, when this took place, it it put in operation forever that the, uh, and later Popes down the line, that they had the right to pick the kings that will reign uh, and the right to uh, excommunicate anybody who they don't like. And this is where this thing, you know, gets going. And that's a very key point in history. In other words, by 800 A.D., the Roman Pope has control of all countries politically now and religiously in Europe. The lights are turned out, and boy, old Jezebel is doing her thing. Then here comes your first church split. In 869... A dispute arises between the Western Catholic Church and the Eastern Catholic Church. Now, they're the same church, but there'd be like Baptist in North Missouri, Baptist in South Missouri. All the same, but but bottom line. And the, the, the Greek Catholics and the Western Catholics of the European Empire. They called a council of Constantinople in 869 to solve the problem. Both guys were claiming to be the Pope. Both guys went so far as to excommunicate the other one. And both guys went so far as to call each the other one the Antichrist. Only time in history I know that both popes were right in everything they said. (laughs) But what can I say? But what happens is they can't get it solved. And the Eastern branch breaks from the Roman Catholic Church. And in time, this becomes your Greek Orthodox Church. A little bit later on, it splits again and it becomes your Russian Orthodox Church. But this is where these two churches come out of the Roman Catholic Church. And like I said, I want you to see how these things develop as we go, how these churches come into being. I want you to leave our church history study knowing some things. I don't expect you to remember it all. I really don't. And uh, if you're ever going to get a handle on church history, it's going to take you doing more than just getting this material. You're going to have to get some material and some books. You're going to have to really go to work on it. But my goal is not to get you to be uh, versed in church history, though I would love for you to be able to do that. 
My goal is for you to go out of here with about four or five, six or seven absolute things that you know now uh, about history that in itself will be enough to carry you a long way and give you the ability to talk intelligently with just about anybody. If you just learned the difference between Jerome's Latin Vulgate and the old Latin, you're, you're ahead of 99% of most of the preachers in this country. And um, so if you can learn where all of these different churches come from, uh, you'll be able to see this thing and be able to put it into play. And uh, during this time, 800 to 1000 A.D., uh, Catholics are now called Christians. They weren't called that before. And from here on down through history, as we close out the Thyatira church period, we see Rome now uh, as a church state. She now controls the political aspects of the world and the religious. She now picks the queens and, and kings, and she, 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 in fact, if you look over here, over here in Revelation, I'll, I'll show it to you again here, uh, at the summation of this thing in Revelation chapter 18, I think it is. This is a better way to even see it than me telling you. Yeah, look over here at Revelation chapter 17. Now, this is a perspective of the Roman Catholic Church, which, by the time you get to Revelation chapter 17, verse 5, is called Mystery Babylon the Great, the Mother of Harlots, and the Abomination of the Earth. And you remember now I told you that the mystery, again, and this is something else I want you to come out of here knowing. The mystery is how did Baal worship all the way back here in Genesis 10, where it starts with Babylon, how did it survive all the way up to where we are at today? And of course, that's one of the great mysteries that's easily solved when you have a Bible. All right, look at 17.1, Revelation 17.1, and there came one of the seven angels which have the seven vials and talked with me saying unto me, come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now, in your Bible, water, I know it's a type of the Word of God. Yes, it is. It's also a picture of people. And you want to write down Jeremiah 51, 13? And you'll go back there and uh, in Ecclesiastes, uh, I think is it 11 or, or 7, where it says, cast thy bread upon the waters and thou shalt find it after many days. 7, that's a picture of putting out the word of God on people, water. So it says that this whore sitteth upon many waters. In other words, she is sitting on top of lots of people. Verse 2, with whom? And this is where we're at right now in history with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit of the wilderness and I saw the woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, the official colors of the Roman Catholic Church, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls and having a golden cup in her, in her hand. That golden cup 
is the official seal of the Roman Catholic Church that was made official in 1825 by Pope Leo XII. And uh, it talks about the fact that he also made a coin. And when the, on that coin was a woman's face and a cup and a saying on that coin that the world is her seat. See that thing? Right out of Revelation chapter 17. And on her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. There be their Manichians, all the ones we talked about. There's your Nestorians, there's your Novatians, there's your Catherii, there's your you know, Albigensians, your Huguenots, all of them. And of course, verse 9 down through here, it says, And here is the mind which hath wisdom, the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And of course, there's only one city on, a place that is, on the face of this planet that's built on seven mountains, and that's Rome. So we see there, and the thing that I want to draw your attention to is what we're at, verse 2, where she's committing fornication with the kings of the earth and the inhabitants being made drunk wine with a fornication. When you get somebody drunk, they lose their ability to reason, and you can pretty much get them to do whatever you want to do. We think of getting drunk on, on booze, but in reality, you can get drunk on anything. It doesn't have to be something you take. Uh, you can get drunk on religion, and uh, that's exactly what happens. Religion, uh, as booze, if it's not done biblically, will take away your thinking process, as the Roman Catholic Church does, and then they will tell you what to believe, what to think, and what to do, uh, and you cease to think for yourself. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Most people today, that's human nature. They like that. That's the way most, most Baptist churches don't operate the exact same way, but they operate on the same principle. They, people like to be told what to do, uh, so they don't have to do it themselves. People like other people doing uh, things for them religiously that they don't have to do themselves. And that's why, you know, the Roman Catholic Church has such appeal. I mean, we used to joke about it when I'm growing up, and I'm sure they joke about it today. You know, you go sin all week and then go take care of it on Saturday night and then go out and sin some more. And it's so easy to get through it all. And then, my goodness, as long as a priest is somewhere close, uh, you know, the fact that if you do die and without absolution, you know, he can give you your last rites and you're in, see? And um, I, I've seen bumper stickers. I don't know if you see them anymore, but I've seen them on the back of cars that say, if I'm in an accident, call a priest. See? I didn't say what to call him, but just said call a priest. <laughs> but during this time, 800 to 1,000 Catholics, like I said, are now called Christians. And from here on down through history, as we close out the Thyatiran church period, we see Rome now a church state, religion, marching down through the years, lawless, politically involved, bathed in the blood of anybody who stands in her way. The list of her fornications that we talked about here is endless. Philip Augustus, Frederick II, Frederick I, Edward I, Edward II, Edward III, Philip IV, Edward I, John, uh, Henry I, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, right up to Henry VIII, Joan of Arc, the Black Prince, Bloody Mary, Queen Elizabeth, Queen Victoria. I mean, the list is endless. Every king in Europe, every queen in Europe 
are connected with the murder, the intrigue, the blasphemy, the political stuff that goes on uh, through the darkest period of man's history. Some of them are against it. Most of them are for it. You find countries going back and forth over the same thing. England changes hands. I don't know how many times. Spain always stays. Italy always stays. Germany goes back and forth. There was a time with John Huss, who lived in Czechoslovakia, and there was a time in his life in the 1500s when the whole nation of Czechoslovakia, the whole nation, was under his preaching, and probably most of them were saved. Today, Czechoslovakia doesn't even exist anymore. And of course, uh, things go past like that, and people never catch them. They never know. You walk through places, probably in your own backyard, where missionaries probably uh, preached to Indians, and people were one to Christ. We walked places. I, I remember one time when, you know, I talked Sunday about George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, or maybe it was last, no, it was last Thursday night. You know, and I remember uh, how intrigued I was as a young guy, and I had a, I had a great opportunity to spend a lot of time in, 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 in the New England area preaching. And I spent many, many, many years preaching revivals in Massachusetts and Connecticut and uh, Vermont. And, uh, you know, my favorite place to go was always Massachusetts because there was so much Bible history there. And I was really just shoveling it in at that point in my life. And I remember going to Boston, and it took me about two or three years to find it. But I remember going to Boston and, and had just read about the great uh, exploits of Jonathan Edwards and, uh, and uh, George Whitfield. And I had read that on the Boston Commons on a certain particular day that George Whitfield had preached and 30,000 people had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And someplace somewhere I read where there was a plaque in the Boston Commons, which is their central park, basically. Uh, there was a plaque. I looked for two years trying to track that plaque down. Finally, on my third venture up there, you know, I would take a whole day and just go to up there and, and try to find different stuff that I wanted to find. I mean, there's a lot of history up there. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff up there. Finally, I found one old guy who was a park guy or ranger or supervisor or whatever the case may be, and he thought he knew where it was. And he was kind enough to take me over to find it. And there under the grass pulled it away was a plaque about this big. And it said there on this such and such a day, da 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 1776 or 78, I forget what it was. It simply said, George, Will, George Whitfield preached on this spot and 30,000 people came to a saving knowledge of Christ. And I just sat there for about an hour, man. And I, you know, right now you look around and all the skyscrapers were there, you know, and the people were going up and down, throwing their Frisbees and laying on the blankets. And it was a beautiful day, you know, and the boats going up and down the deal and, and, uh, and everybody there. And I thought to myself, I tried to just take myself back to 1776 or 8, whenever it was, and, and think what it must have been like <coughs> when that old boy stood there and preached to a crowd of God knows how many people. And that many people came to a saving knowledge of Christ on one preaching event. And yet, that has to rank up with probably one of the greatest things in church history. And yet, it took me three years to find it, and nobody knew where it was. And when I did find it, it was almost overgrown with grass because nobody even cared anymore. I tell you, those are the, this is why we're in a mess we're in today, folks. 
why we're in the mess we're in today. And this is why we can't be in the mess we're in today. And uh, this is why we got to know where we've come from. Well, this brings us up to around 1000 A.D. And it brings us to the end of Thyatira and the beginning of Sardis. And next time we get together, uh, we'll pick it up here in about 1000 A.D. And we'll move up to the Reformation. And uh, we'll pick it up from there. So I appreciate you being here tonight. I hope it's been a blessing to you. I hope you, I hope you, I hope you put some goals for yourself in this that you, you really, you know, put some things down. That you, you know, it's one thing just to come to class and get all the notes. I suggest that if you're going to take the effort to come here, you ought to take the effort to try to get four or five things really nailed down. Don't try to get it all. Enjoy it. It's, it's, it's entertaining to talk about. I tell good stories. It's all true. It's exciting to me. I'll make it exciting to you. But you're not going to remember everything. Get down four or five absolute concrete things out of our church history that you just go home with when we're done. And you know now why these things are the way they are. And uh, I'll point them out to you as we go through, but I've already gave you four or five tonight, so that's what we'll do with it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for the folks that have come out, and thank you, Father, for the blessings of history and your word and everything that you've given us and done for us. We do love you. Pray now, Father, that you'll get us home safe tonight and, and let us think about these things and bring us back Thursday night as we study uh, in history, uh, study in, in our Bible study and then Sunday. Pray for the appointments the rest of the week, Lord, that you'll guide me in all of those and help me to help the people. Thank you for the good ones already this week and for the ones yet tomorrow night and Thursday. We just pray, Father, your hand upon us and all that we do. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. For those of you that may be interested, I do believe this is a...